in a courtroom situation where you're trying to prove a case, there is a thing that's called positive evidence from a hostile source. Now, that may sound like foreign language to us, but I think it's pretty easily explained. Positive evidence from a hostile source. Here would be an example. Let's say that there has been a murder committed. Let's say that Larry Raspberry there is on trial for murder. And so the prosecuting attorney comes before the courtroom and the jury, and he has a a weapon in his hand, and it's a pistol. It's an old-fashioned revolver, the kind that you might imagine Larry would have. And so uh, the, the prosecutor says, now, this, we know for a fact that this is the pistol that killed the man, and... Because we've run the ballistics on the bullet that was found in the body of the dead man. We know that this gun fired that bullet. I want to know something, Mr. Raspberry. Is this your gun? Is this your gun? Now, Larry knows it's his gun. He knows they know it's his gun. He'd rather not have to admit that, that his gun is the proven murder weapon. He'd rather not have to admit that, but there's really no getting around it. He has to admit it. Yes, that's my gun. Yes, he said, yes, that's my gun, but... No, no, that's enough. That's all. Yes or no, is it your gun? You see how they would get that? They would get that testimony out of Larry. He'd have to admit something he really doesn't want to admit. And then they would go on with the trial. But when you get that positive evidence from a hostile source, it removes all doubt. After Larry had admitted that he that that murder weapon was, in fact, his gun. Is there any doubt in anybody's mind? No, that removes all doubt, right? That is positive proof. That Now, Larry could still argue that he's innocent, that he wasn't the one that pulled the trigger, but the fact that the that his gun was the murder weapon is a proven fact now. Nobody can deny it, right? Positive evidence from a hostile source. Okay. All right, now we want to take that idea. We're not, we're not talking about a murder trial tonight. Uh, but we are going to talk about that idea of positive evidence from a hostile source, the same concept that we just described. Tonight what we want to do is to look for a few minutes at the ongoing uh, controversy between creation and evolution. All right? Uh, that, that is not a settled fact. Obviously, those of us who believe in God's creative work are at great odds with those who teach the general theory of evolution. Now, what we'll see is that sometimes the evolutionists actually tell the truth about evolution. And when they do, they are providing for us positive evidence from a hostile truth, a hostile source. Now, the evolutionists don't always tell the truth about evolution, but sometimes they do. And when they do, they are, are, are admitting the weakness of their own case and actually providing for us quite powerful evidence that evolution didn't happen and that creation did. And so we're going to talk tonight about some instances where the evolutionists are actually telling the truth about evolution. I would advise you up front, tonight's lesson is not going to contain Scripture by the very nature of it. Now, that's a rarity for us because what we like to do when we, when we have lessons from this pulpit is have them packed full of Scripture But because of the nature of this, and we're going to be quoting the evolutionists themselves, obviously they're not delving into Scripture, so we won't be using Scripture tonight, I want to tell you that up front. And if you are visiting with us, I hope you will understand that that's a rare thing for us, but by the nature of the, I think you'll see the nature of of these observations uh, uh, are different. 
Thank you for being here tonight. As, as Yancey already said, we're glad for the presence of everybody. Uh, we appreciate your diligence to be back on Sunday night. And for any who are visiting with us, thanks for coming. We hope you'll come again whenever you can. Let's just look at some quotes from evolutionists. We want them, in their own words, to show us the truth about evolution. And the truth about evolution is it didn't happen, okay? And so let's read their own words. First of all, let's let them tell us something about the origin of the universe. Where did this all come from? Where did the material universe come from? Let's see what they have to say about that. Here's a, a, a quote from one such scientist who said, Big Bang cosmology is probably as widely believed as has been any theory of the universe in the history of Western civilization. Now you understand about the Big Bang. Uh, the scientists claim that eons ago, billions of years ago, most of them now saying on the order of 20 billion years ago, all the matter that, that makes up the entire vast universe was compressed into something smaller than the head of a pin. And then it got so tightly compressed, it exploded and started spreading out. And we are still witnessing the expansion of the universe as it all expands out from that ancient Big Bang. That's, they say, where the universe came from, the Big Bang. This fellow says that theory, the Big Bang theory, is, is as widely believed as any theory of the universe in, in the history of the Western civilization. It rests, however, on many untested and in some cases untestable assumptions. Indeed, Big Bang cosmology has become a bandwagon of thought that reflects faith as much as objective truth. Do you get that? He's saying we can't actually prove it. We just believe it happened, and that's what we're going with. We're going with it, even though we admit there is no proof of it. Now, how often have you heard about the Big Bang Theory? And, and, and when people talk about the Big Bang, when scientists talk about it, they speak about it as though it is established fact. But by their own admission, it's not a fact. It's not been tested. It can't be proved. It's, it's just something they want to believe in, so they believe in it. Here's another quote from uh, a man called Dr. Robert Jastrow. Uh, Jastrow was a, a very prominent space scientist, astronomer in Britain. And here's what he wrote. He said, in science, as in the Bible, the world begins with an act of creation. That view has not always been held by scientists. Only as a result of the most recent discoveries can we say with a fair degree of certainty a fair degree of confidence, that the world has not existed forever, that it began abruptly without apparent cause in a blinding event that defies scientific explanation. Now, here's a scientist that said, we know, he says we know for a fact that the universe hadn't always been here. That's interesting, right? So matter is not eternal. The universe had a starting point. But he says we don't know how it started. It started without apparent cause, a blinding event that defies scientific explanation. I would agree with him about that, really. That sounds like Genesis 1, right? That Cole read for us just a few minutes ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the explanation. Now, he doesn't want to acknowledge that explanation. Science doesn't have that explanation. The Bible has the explanation. But he admits there must have been a starting point, and we can't explain how it got started. So, when we, uh, the, the very first point that we should stress is scientists admit that they don't have an answer for the origin of the universe. Where did the physical universe come from? Where did the matter that comprises this vast universe, where did it come from? And in their own words, they admit we don't have an answer to that question. All right? 
Right? Now let's go to another consideration. What about the appearance of life? So the first question is, where did matter come from? This, this desk is matter, right? How did, how did non-living matter become living, uh, uh, organisms? How do you go from non-living matter to things that are alive? Where, how did life appear? Uh, in this universe, all right? They already said we don't know where the universe comes from. Now, what do they say about how non-living matter became alive, all right? Well, here's a quote, again, from this Robert Jastrow. He says, the theory of evolution is an act of faith. The act of faith consists in assuming that the scientific view of the origin of life is correct without having concrete evidence to support that belief. Do you get that? We believe it. But there isn't concrete evidence to support that belief. Now, that's a pretty uh, open admission. What's interesting is that those of us who are Bible believers, we often get ridiculed, they claim, for believing in things that we can't prove. Actually, they are the ones who are doing that. Those of us who are Bible believers have a whole system of evidence that we believe confirms what uh, is held by us to be true. We study, how often do we study evidences? We believe we've got lots of evidence for what we believe. But concerning the theory of evolution and how life began, evolutionists admit they don't have any evidence to support that. Uh, One more time from Jastrow, he says, Science still has no answer to the riddle of life. The record of the first billion years of the Earth's existence has been erased, that magic period when life evolved here. The theory of the chemical origin of life is held by scientists as an article of faith without proof. Get that? They believe it, but they acknowledge they don't have proof for it. And again, he said, many chemists have tried and the results shed some light on the problem, but the gap between non-life and life remains. At present, science has no satisfactory answer to the question of origin of life on the earth. I get that. You see what he's saying? There is no explanation. He acknowledges that life had to spring from non-living matter, but he doesn't know how. And science can't explain. There is no answer. All right? Now, again, what we have here is a case of a scientist telling the truth about evolution. And, And the critical point we're stressing here is they don't know how that first spark of life got here. In other words, they don't know how matter originated itself, non-living things. And then they especially don't know how non-living things became living things. They can't explain that. And when they're being honest about it, they admit it, that they have no answer to that. Here's a quote from a Dr. Michael Denton. He's a molecular biologist. And notice what he says. Considering the way the prebiotic soup is referred to... Now, stop there for a minute. What is this prebiotic soup? Well, evolutionists, the best they can come up with is that way, way, way on back there in time, eons ago, billions upon billions of years ago, here on planet Earth, everything was just sort of a chemical stew. There are all kinds of chemicals just floating around here. And somehow or another, just the right mix of chemicals got together. Then, a bit of energy zapped that perfect combination of chemicals. Nothing was alive. There was nothing alive. But all the chemicals, just the right chemicals, got together just at the right place and in the right quantities, 
And then a spark of energy reacted upon that non-living chemical soup. That's what he's referring to there as the prebiotic soup. And, and suddenly, a living cell began. Uh, it, it just all happened at once, but that's how it happened. There was this, this prebiotic soup, and that's where we came from. Now he says, considering the way the prebiotic soup is referred to in so many discussions of the origin of life as an already established reality, it comes as something of a shock to realize that there is absolutely no positive evidence for its existence. <laughs> here, here this guy's being honest again. In other words, we're, 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 trusting that that soup thing was the answer to how we got here. But the fact of the matter is, uh-oh, we have no evidence that that soup ever existed. <laughs> you see it? Now, what we got here is evolutionists being honest, right? They're admitting we can't prove what we teach, but this is what we think anyway. Let's go on. Sir Fred Hoyle uh, was a very famous British physicist and astronomer. And here's a longer quote from him, but it goes to that same thing we were just describing, how life supposedly came from non-living matter. Now, now, he's being honest. Notice what he says. If there were a basic principle of matter which somehow drove organic systems toward life, now, again, some process, what are you talking about? Some process whereby non-living things could become alive. He says, if there was some principle of matter that somehow drove organic systems toward life, its existence should easily be demonstrable in the laboratory. One could, for instance, take a swimming bath, that's what the Brits would call it, we'd call it a swimming pool, take a swimming pool to represent the primordial soup, fill it with, as, with any chemicals of a non-biological nature you please, pump any gases over it or through it you please, and shine any kind of radiation on it that takes your fan it, fancy, he says, let the experiment proceed for a year and see how many of those 2,000 enzymes, that is proteins produced by the living cells, have appeared in the bath. Now, what he's saying is this mixture of chemicals wouldn't have to just produce one thing. It'd have to produce thousands of things to come together to make a living cell. In other words, it wouldn't be that just... You, you did this experiment, and after a year, one necessary thing had happened. No, thousands of necessary things would have to happen in that soup in order to produce a living cell. He says, but after a year, he says, see how many of those 2,000 enzymes have appeared in the bath. He says, I will give the answer, and so save the time and trouble and expense of actually doing the experiment. You would find nothing at all except possibly Atari sludge composed of amino acids and other simple organic chemicals. How can I be so confident, he goes on, of this statement? Well, if it were otherwise, the experiment would long since have been done and would be well known and famous throughout the world. The cost of it would be trivial compared to the cost of landing a man on the moon. In short, there is not a shred of objective evidence to support the hypothesis that life began in an organic soup here on the earth. You get that? So, uh, here he is, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll put the challenge before you, but he says, I know you can't do it. He says, you might as well not even try. You can't come up with that. You can't mix any batch of chemicals. I'll, he says, I'll let you choose the chemicals. You can mix them in any quantities you want. I'll let you do anything to it that you want. And he says, you will never produce even one of the necessary enzymes that would be necessary to have a living cell. It simply can't happen. All right. So what have we got the scientists admitting? 
We've got them admitting that they can't explain where the universe came from. And we've got them admitting that they can't answer how life sprang from non-living matter. Okay? So we've got two important things by their own admission that they can't prove. Let's talk about one more. Let's talk then, thirdly, let's talk about how life progressed. In other words, you'd have to have matter, point one, they can't explain it. Then you'd have to, that non-living matter would have to develop into a living cell. Uh, they can't explain how that could happen, but they have to have that, right? Then that first single living cell would have to evolve into all the different kind of living things that we see on the earth today. So there would have to be quite a, a progression or evolution of life to get to where we are today, right? Now, what do they say about that? Here's a fella uh, who's a, a an expert. This David Philbeam is a well-known expert in human evolution. But here's what he says when he's honest. He said, if you brought a smart scientist from another discipline and showed him the meager evidence we've got, he'd surely say, forget it. There isn't enough to go on. In other words, if a scientist was really honest, he'd say, no, there's, there's, there's no evidence uh, for evolution. Here's a, a, another quote from a textbook on evolution. It says, the interpretation of evolution is in a state of upheaval. The rapid advancement of molecular biology has led into question many of the tenets of Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism, which, although valuable approaches at the time they were formulated, never fulfilled the criteria demanded by real scientific theories. In the author's opinion, no real theory of evolution can be formulated at present. Uh, now think about that. Darwin wrote his famous book, The Origin of Species, in 1859, over 150 years ago. Right. Now, that's been modified some. We might comment here. Of course, Darwin, you know what he taught, the origin of species. Uh, in the origin of species, that was the uh, uh, natural selection, survival of the fittest, and so forth. Neo-Darwinism kind of modifies that a little bit because we know a lot more now about genetics than, than they knew back then. So that tries to incorporate into Darwinian evolution the notions of genetics and so forth. But this person says, those things don't work, and we really don't have, more than 150 years after Darwin wrote his book, we don't really have any better answers than we had back then. No real theory of evolution can be formulated at present. You see, they haven't advanced in their understanding of that at all, by their own admission. They don't know any more about it than they ever did. They're just guessing. Here's a, a famous paleontologist. He says, we paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the theory of gradual adaptive change, all the while really knowing that it does not. Do you get that? Now, what about paleontology? Why is that important? Do you understand what a paleontologist is? That's a person who studies fossils, right? Why would a paleontologist or a fossil expert, why would his statement be important in consideration of evolution? Well, because if evolution happened, we ought to go back to the fossils. We ought to be able to go back to the fossils and dig up evidence that would show how it progressed through time, right? But here's a paleontologist, and there are plenty of them who admit that while they would like to claim that, they can't prove it. They have said that the history of life supports gradual adaptive change, but we really know that it doesn't. Any true 
expert in fossils would have to admit we don't have the evidence in the fossil record. Here's a, another quote. Notice this is from a, uh, a Jerome Lejeune, who is the chair of fundamental uh, generic, uh, generics. And we're going to have trouble with my words here. Anyway, here's a, a fellow who's talking as a, as a geneticist. He knows about how things happen and, and what's passed on in species and so forth. Notice what he has to say here. He says, The neo-Darwinist is now reaching the point of dignity in the history of science that the Ptolemaic system in astronomy reached long ago. Stop there for a minute. You know what the Ptolemaic system in astronomy was? The Ptolemaic uh, system in astronomy uh, was the idea that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything revolved around the earth. All right? People used to believe that, right? That was, that, was, that, was the, that was the established, accepted scientific position. Not that the, for the instance, that the earth revolved around the sun, but rather that the sun revolved around the earth, and that the earth was actually the center of the universe, and everything revolved around. We now know that that's absolutely not the case, right? But there was a time when that was believed. What this person is saying is this idea of Darwinian evolution is is uh, becoming so silly uh, that it is uh, achieving that status. In other words, it's, it's, it's about equal with those who claim... Claiming evolution is about the equal of claiming that the earth is the center of the universe. That's what he's saying. We know, he goes on and says, we know that it does not work. That is Darwinism. And that is interesting because from the actual structure of the chromosome, we can demonstrate that the human species did not come from a progressive humanization of a pre-human. Now, get this. This is a guy who is uh, well-versed in genetics, and he says, we've learned now enough about the genes to know that we can say certainly that humans didn't evolve from primates, for instance, from the apes or the monkeys, as has as, as commonly been said. We know that that's not so. And so the theory that's been taught about that actually doesn't work. All right. So think about what we've got here. We've got the evolutionists admitting they can't answer where the material universe came from. They can't answer how life sprang from non-living matter. They can't explain how things supposedly progressed by evolution from a single living cell to where we are today. They got, they got nothing. By their own admission, they've got nothing. And so we might ask about the motive behind evolution. And specifically, why would they support a theory which they admit has no evidence? What would be their motive in it? If, if when they are honest, they admit this whole theory doesn't work, it's in big trouble, there's no evidence to support it whatsoever. When they're honest, they admit that. The question would be, why do they keep teaching it? Why do they keep supporting a theory that has no evidence? Well, here's a quote from an evolutionist that really hits the bottom line. Evolution is unproven and unprovable. We believe it because the only alternative is special creation, which is unthinkable. You get that? Special creation. That'd be what Cole read for us, right? From Genesis 1.1. Special creation. God created the heavens and the earth. We have to believe evolution. We admit it's unproven and unprovable, but we believe it because the only alternative to it is that God created everything. We just can't accept that. He's being honest, isn't he? He's being honest. 
the fact of the matter is that they simply don't like the alternative to the uh, to the general theory of evolution. The uh, the alternative to the general theory of evolution is that God created everything, and they and they simply can't accept that. Uh, here's a, a quote from a well-known evolutionist named Huxley. He said, "I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption." The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the with a problem of pure metaphysics. He goes on, he is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Do you get Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying, my motive in, in pursuing this was because I wanted to prove there is no meaning to life. We're just an evolved species here on planet Earth. There's no purpose for our existence. Therefore, no one can say, you should do this and not do that. I can do as I please. He says, that's why I believe that. That was my purpose for believing it. Uh, here's a quote from a professor at the University of California. Notice it says, most Americans believe that the earth is billions of years old and that life evolved gradually from simple to complex forms. Now, we don't believe that uh, as a point of fact. A lot of people do, though, and I would argue that he's probably right. Most Americans do believe that the earth is billions of years old. We believe it's really only a few thousand years old, according to the Bible. But most Americans probably do believe the earth is billions of years old, that life evolved gradually from simple to complex forms. But they also believe that evolution was a means by which God carried out a plan to create humans. And I think he's probably right about that. Most people think, if you were to question even religious people, they would say God used evolution to bring us to where we are today. It is the concept of theistic evolution. God used evolution to get us where we are today. We don't believe that either. Uh, and, and you'll see why we shouldn't believe that here as he goes on. He says, for tactical reasons, Darwinists or evolutionists don't rush to tell all these people that they are missing the point. But all in good time, let the people first learn that evolution is a fact. They can be told later what evolution means. What does evolution mean? Evolution means there is no God, right? And so... He's saying we're in a transition time. We'll, we'll let people believe that the earth is billions of years old, and we'll let them believe that God used evolution to bring things to uh, life to its present state. We'll get around later to them, proving to them that you've got to take God out of that equation. It's all natural. So they have an agenda. Basically, what he's admitting here is that they have an agenda that they're pursuing, and they're consistently leading people in the direction they want them to go. Here's another quote. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the, phen of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori, that means a position held in advance, our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No, no get this, no matter how the uh, counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying, 
We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, when he talks about materialism, here's what he's talking about is a, is a simply naturalistic explanation for, for our existence. He says we have a prior commitment to, to come to that conclusion. He says we admit that... Uh, did, did you notice what he said there? He said... Uh, let's see. Well, I wanted to get back to that previous... Yeah, he said uh, we have a prior commitment, a commitment to a material explanation of our existence it's not that science compels us to this conclusion, but rather it is our prior adherence to these concepts that causes us to create a whole system of explanations that, that lead to that conclusion, even though they are counterintuitive. That means they don't even make sense. And, it's a, it's, and even though it's a mystifying thing, notice it, it doesn't, it's mystery. It, it's like black magic. But we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We're going to pursue this naturalistic, materialistic explanation for our existence because to do otherwise would allow a divine foot in the door. We're almost done. Hang with me just a minute. Here's another quote from a historian in Australia who says, science is not so much concerned with truth as it is with consensus. What counts as truth is what scientists can agree to count as truth at any particular moment in time. Scientists are not really receptive or not really open-minded to any sorts of criticism or any sorts of claims that actually are attacking some of the established parts of the research traditional paradigm. In this case, that research paradigm is neo-Darwinism. So it's very difficult for people who are pushing claims that contradict that paradigm to get a hearing. They will find it hard to get research grants. They'll find it hard to get their research published. They'll find it very hard. What this person is actually describing here is how closed-minded the scientific community is. And that's pretty well established. Uh, if you take a position denying evolution, for instance, trying to teach some alternative to evolution, you'll be kicked out of most academic institutions. They're closed-minded to that. You can't get funded. You can't get a job, basically, is what this person is saying. Finally, one more quote. We have no acceptable theory of evolution at the present time. There is none, and I cannot accept the theory that I teach my students each year. Now, get this. Here's, this is from a professor. Uh, he says, there's no acceptable theory. I can't really accept the theory, but I'm teaching it to my students every year. Let me explain. I teach the synthetic theory known as the Neo-Darwinian for one reason only, not because it's good, we know it's bad, but because there isn't any other. While waiting to find something better, you are taught something which is known to be inexact. Isn't that amazing? Now, again, the whole premise of, of these quotes that we have here t before us tonight is sometimes these evolutionists tell the truth about their position. Uh, and when they do... They really give up their case entirely. Here's a notable evolutionist who, who admits that he's teaching his students something he knows is not true because he doesn't have anything else to teach them. Well, I guess what we would ask them, why don't you just teach what the Bible says? Because that's an explanation that works. Again, uh, I hope you understand the nature of our brief little examination here tonight was to get the evolutionists in their own words. Positive proof from a hostile source is the concept. When they admit their theory is bogus, we should accept them at their word. They're telling the truth. And so I guess what we would end up with is just to say, especially to our young people, to say, when you're challenged in school by those who are teaching the theory of evolution, 
a naturalistic explanation for the existence of the universe and for our being here as, li- uh, uh, you know, as living creatures on planet Earth, when you're pressed by them and they're teaching evolution, don't let that shake your faith. The fact is, they don't have evidence for what they're teaching. And when they're honest, they admit it. In reality, the story of creation as it's taught in the Word of God, is a, it works. It's a, it's a system that works. It makes sense and there's evidence to support it. So I guess we would especially encourage our young people, don't be shaken in your faith by these unsubstantiated claims of evolutionists. Their theory simply doesn't work. Thanks for listening to what we had to say tonight. We appreciate it very much. We will end our lesson with our typical song of invitation. This lesson tonight obviously hasn't taught from the Word of God what one ought to do to be saved, but you may already know that simple gospel plan of salvation. We would, we would be glad to assist in your obedience. If you're a Christian in need of the prayers of the saints, let us know. We'd be glad to pray with you and for you. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.